0: A disputed U.S. presidential election. A narrowly avoided federal government shutdown. And division over race relations stemming from the legacy of slavery in the United States. If I asked you what era of American history to which I might be referring, you might say just these last two or three years, the present day, the modern era. And the names of the presidents who would spring to mind might be those of Biden, Trump, and Obama, not that of one James Garfield. And yet, yes, it was James A. Garfield who was himself dealing with these very issues, questions, and national dilemmas over 143 years ago as the 20th President of the United States. With dilemmas that sound so similar between the late 19th century and today, what might we learn about our moment in history, here and now, by looking back at the presidency of little-known James Garfield and his United States of America nearly a century and a half ago. From the New Story Company, this is The New Story Is, a podcast that explores the stories, perceptions, and ideas that have come to shape the world today as we know it. Along the way, we speak to talented guests who are championing the new stories that may shape our collective future for the good. I'm Dave Persillo. We're joined today by C.W. Goodyear, writer, author, and biographer whose new book is called President Garfield, From Radical to Unifier. In his book, C.W. tells the story of a forgotten and misunderstood president whose assassination just 200 days into his first term has overshadowed the fascinating life of a man who became the 20th president. The presidential biography is also a portrait of an America in flux, where cronyism, nepotism, and bribery would dominate newspaper headlines, and a country was attempting and failing to remedy the recent legacy of chattel slavery. C.W. Goodyear is a graduate of Yale University with a degree in global affairs. He currently lives in Alexandria, Virginia, where he joins us from today. Charlie, welcome to The New Story Is, and thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, Dave, it's my pleasure entirely. Thank you for having me on.
0: So despite President James A. Garfield being elected for uh, only a few months before his assassination, he was shot, as I mentioned, in the cold open 200 days uh, into his first term. He eventually died from, from uh, the infection from that gunshot wound. It was either days mm-hmm. or weeks later. You argue that Garfield is still one of the most notable presidents in the nation's history. Tell us a little bit about why. I think
1: he is certainly one of the most distinctive. And You raise a very good point. Uh, he has gone for, I'd say, multiple generations of historians have looked back on his life, and they've typically viewed it through the lens of his death. He was very famously the second president to be assassinated. But what, it, what struck me about him was James Garfield was being described, even before his presidency, as being one of the most accomplished and influential Americans of all time. Uh, his predecessor, Rutherford Hayes, yet another president that, you know, hasn't been remembered uh, by many Americans uh, in today's times, uh, described President Garfield like this. He said, the truth is no man ever started solo who accomplished so much in all of our nation's history, not even Abraham Lincoln or Benjamin Franklin. So uh, that drew me into this figure of James Garfield, but what was more distinctive to me uh, of his life and really the lesson of his life was James Garfield was this pragmatic, moderate, reasonable, friendly, open-minded figure in a Washington that, as you described earlier on in your introduction, was just riven by partisan division. He was elected to the presidency in 1880, not because he was this factional leader or somebody who was even really trying to run for the presidency. Instead, he was catapulted into the Republican nomination because he was the last Republican, who everybody of who, who everyone throughout the rest of the party could stand to be in a room He was the last person in Washington, even who everybody liked. Now that's a very complicated legacy, I think. And in, in many ways, people saw that as a great weakness. But he was the uh, de- he was devoted by the end of his life to keeping this fractious nation functioning together. And as a matter of fact, that ended up ensuring one his election, and then two his assassination once he managed to make it to the White House.
0: Yeah, and that's a fascinating dichotomy and something that may sound even paradoxical um, and certainly tragic because you argue in the book that the qualities that he espoused as a moderate politician in a highly divided time is actually what would not only make him, uh, as you said, they're eligible to be a candidate for president because he was so much less disdained among his own party members. But also mm-hmm. the the diplomacy and bipartisanship, his bipartisan nature would also make him the subject of scorn. So we will talk about about his death and his assassination, but I do really want to focus in on his life, which is also the point of your book, right? In that his uh, Garfield's assassination, his death, his notoriety for being assassinated has historically kind of overshadowed what kind of a figure he was, uh, a highly f- flawed figure for some of his thoughts and beliefs, but also highly... Um, idealistic and quite visionary for his time, given the era in which he lived. Before we talk about him more, I wonder if we could set the stage a little bit, Charlie, by talking about the era in which he would become president, that that James Garfield would become president. Let's first ask, could you give us a little bit of an understanding for how the Democratic and Republican parties of today differ uh, if they differ, from, from those of Garfield's era? That is an incredibly
1: hard question, I, I must say. What was nice about this book is because when you go deep enough into American history, and you actually you don't really need to go that far, um, you, you find that party labels mean less and less from a modern perspective. I, I, I compare it almost to like a magic trick, where you have the ping pong ball in the cups, and then you swish <laughs> it around and you lose track. That's the same practice or the same impact I looking back at Republicans and Demo- Democrats of yesteryear. But yeah, the setup was that Garfield and his generation of Republicans were the very first, in many ways, generation of Republicans. And they, the, the party was originally founded to be this northern counterweight to the, de- the southern Democratic Party. And the Republican Party was founded loosely around one issue and one issue only, and that was to oppose the political power and then, by extension, uh, slavery itself, the political power of slavery, and then slavery itself as an institution, uh, and so that was really the the, the 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 catalyzing point for that version of the Republican Party. Uh, the Republicans of that time, and particularly Garfield's early brand of Republican, the, the, when he joined the Civil War and when he was a, this young, firebrand legislative leader in in Reconstruction, he was a radical Republican which was defined by actually extremely progressive social positions. The Radical Republicans believed not only in the immediate abolition of slavery, which was not actually that common in the Republican Party of that time, they also believed in immediate equality of citizenship being legislated in the middle of the Civil War. They believed in the disenfranchisement, exile, or execution of leading Confederates. And uh, they also believed even in the idea of redistributing southern plantation land, southern property, and giving it to former slaves and what they called loyal whites. So not exactly a small government, uh, states rights-oriented organization, really. And I think that anecdote pretty much sets the table for the differences between that version of the Republican Party and what it is today. The Democrats of that time were the heirs to the great Jeffersonian tradition of agrarian you know, rural political power. And so they were, again, also very different from modern times. They believe very fervently in states' rights. And they were also, you know, great supporters of slavery and then afterward of white supremacy. That was the Democratic Party of that time.
0: Yeah. So I love the, uh, the metaphor of the disappearing ping pong ball in the Red Cup yeah. because, mm-hmm. it, it mean, it would be oversimplistic, I think, Charlie, to say mm-hmm. that the Republicans and Democrats of today are are, it's almost like the the name. If you switch the names, you would think that that would be the legacy, but it's closer to that. Where today we associate, you know, Republican power in um, in the South, in the American South, by and large, Democratic Party power in the North and in on the coasts and the so-called liberal yeah. progressive coasts. Um, but it was a very different time, and so here when we talk about the Republican Party of Garfield's era and Garfield himself. Uh, Garfield was an abolitionist, and we're going to yeah, talk yeah, about yeah, that yeah, a bit. Um, but in, in being the anti-Confederates and in the, in the Union, uh, the Union, you know, the, the protectors yeah, yeah. and preservers of the Union during the Civil War, so that's a bit of the political landscape uh, during the, the Civil War era, and then in the post-Civil War era yeah. into Reconstruction, the Reconstruction era of America, w- during which time Garfield would be uh, in the Congress for, I believe, upwards of twenty years.
1: Yeah, he was he was in for about he he was in for about 17 years. And that is an incredibly by that point in American history, that's an incredibly long stretch of time. Uh, you know, today we're spoiled with people who go to Washington and then it seems never leave. But back in that time, a 17-year congressional career was almost unheard of. That was an almost an unprecedented run of political power. And kind of to go back to my earlier point about just the the scale of Garfield's achievements even before his presidency. He was uh, born in a log cabin, raised by a single mother. By his late 20s, so younger than you and I, he, he was uh, a state senator, a, a college president, and an abolitionist preacher all at the same time. And then you fast forward another year, and he has uh, become what was then at that point the youngest brigadier general in the Union Army during the Civil War. Another year and change, and he's become the second youngest congressman. In the country. And then he has this long tenure that spans not just administrations, but entire eras of American history. And the nation changes around him. Uh, The political positions that he initially believes in during his life, the tide goes out. And he alone really has the perspective and also the wisdom to recognize that the tide is going out and act accordingly. Uh, he was also just an American, amazing American renaissance man. You know, he was, while serving in Congress, he was also a Supreme Court attorney. He founded the first federal Department of Education as a congressman. And uh, he even authored an original proof of the Pythagorean theorem just in his free time. Uh, he, he was an amazing, amazing man. But, he, but the he, he also, and we're leading into this, he he got to witness the the evolution of the republican party in that era and he got to witness not just and participate in the rise of reconstruction and the passing of all of that legislation of those positions that he fervently believed in he also got to witness its downfall and the version of the republican party that came afterwards that was devoted less to the south and more to the business prosperity of the country and then also um in in many ways to abusing federal power you had the growth of these corrupt machines in federal government and so the republican party moved on and garfield was left kind of this relic of an earlier time and he managed that very well
0: fascinating yeah so you describe early in your book charlie that there are two ways to look at the united states of america during the time of james garfield there's one which is like the the bright spot the golden era uh post-war unity uh, and the, the start of some some real industrial growth in the country, uh, the country being united across from the Atlantic to the Pacific and so on. But then you also write when the, when the sheen rubs off of that bright spot, that golden era look at this l- late 19th century America, you describe what you could see as the glaring foundation of disparity beneath. And that's a quote most notably from how Reconstruction was already failing and being deliberately dismantled. You mentioned there that, uh, in your last answer, that James Garfield was noticing the tide going out. Do you mean specifically that he was observing and aware of how the, his Republican Party was starting to, as you said, dismantle Reconstruction and lose its devotion to rebuilding the South and rebuilding a more equitable uh, post-chattel slavery South and if so, what was Garfield's response to that dramatic, seemingly dramatic change, which may have just actually been not that dramatic and just preserving power structures that had been there for hundreds of years?
1: No, it was pretty dramatic. Uh, it, it, it was uh, what well, he he was less when he when he said he saw the tide going out. He was actually not when when I when I use that phrase. Uh, that's in reference to not necessarily him noticing that other polit- that the political establishment is moving on. It's actually him witnessing reconstruction start to sputter because of challenges both within the South, when you have repeated uprisings from certain classes of white Southerners targeted at, you know black Americans. Uh, but also the obstacles that are emerging in legal structures. The Supreme Court serves as a you know major obstacle in the prosecution of reconstruction. But then also economic crises, and very importantly, the exhaustion of northern voters to having to worry about the South. Uh, you know, the, the Reconstruction was a ten-year process, pretty much a decades-long process, uh, or over a decade long, and uh, it was that's that's a long period of time to ask an electorate after an existential bloody conflict that killed you know that was uh, among the most devastating in national history, continental history, even uh that's a long time to ask an electorate to keep on worrying about a certain section of the country and the well-being of a certain class of americans that a lot of americans already didn't really care that much about um white americans that is and, and so um the, the the north moved on and garfield noticed that and he noticed the political backlash that was occurring against republicans who continued to prosecute reconstruction thoroughly he saw the practical challenge that challenges that were emerging on the ground And he was part of that political establishment that decided to pivot, that decided to change. Uh, And, you know, I got to say it's he it's it's a complicated legacy that he then inherits. He 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 defines himself as being part of this post radical version of the Republican Party. He says during the impeachment of Andrew Johnson, he says, I'm trying to do two things. I'm trying to be a radical and not a fool. So, he's trying to find a politically pragmatic way to detach the Republican Party from having to worry about civil rights. And he's trying to find a way forward. But also, he, he also senses that the policies of radical Republicans failed. He, he saw the struggles of Reconstruction on the ground as being symptomatic of the policies being maybe be misguided. So, he was searching about for new ways to institute a fair, more just republic, a more righteous republic um, after the Civil War. But he, he, he grew disenchanted with the ways radicals were initially prosecuted. And uh, I, I think his perspective on that was very uh, compelling, very complicated, and very interesting. Because he believed that in the early stages of the Civil War, he was arguing that the Civil War was actually divine will. He said it was punishment from God for the United States continuing to tolerate racial inequities in its civil structure of its failing to live up to its original promises as a nation. And then you fast forward, you know, t- to the end of Reconstruction, which was let's let's put a date on it 1876. Uh Garfield is saying that only time can be the solution really of the the the, the structural challenges in the America of his age. he retains a great optimism for this future uh, the, for the destiny of the republic that's a phrase of his from his inaugural address um but he's also very willing to defer fighting those battles to the next generation of americans and so that that uh that part of his political identity but also his general uh reputation in the republican party as being this peacemaker as being this person who is somewhat soft on the issues that uh that that's a very complicated uh political character. That, you know, today I think, and this is an answer that I give a lot to people who ask, what's the modern relevance of Garfield, his political career and everything he witnessed, it's a very good reminder, one, that a lot of the divisions that we're incurring today as a nation, a lot of the crises that we call unprecedented, they're actually not that unprecedented. So that's something to keep in mind, including, by the way, a, dis- a, a presidential election that the losing candidate calls fraudulent. That's, that's another thing that happened. life. Uh, but another thing is he's a very good look at what it's, what, what, it, what it's like when we have a pathologically reasonable person in power in Washington. He was somebody who defined himself by his ability to keep a coalition together and compromise on the issues. And uh, that's an interesting contrast to what we have today, I think.
0: Absolutely, and uh, I appreciate Charlie that you call attention to how uh, a lot of the, a lot of the narrative um, of our time, the perception and the narrative, both from the media but also from from we the people, when we think about the times in which we live, in many ways, maybe they are unprecedented. In a lot of ways, I mean, I'm hearing so many of the same themes that are that kind of prove the point. What a lot of historians and students of history will say is that history repeats itself. Yeah. How interesting that you mention. This idea of the exhaustion of a certain segment of voters concerning uh, one particular set of very important issues when, you know, in recent conversations we're having on the podcast just talking about the spike of interest and also investment in something like DEI in workplaces and outside of workplaces in the United States, you know, peaking with the murder of George Floyd in May and June of 2020, now precipitously falling off, now being cut back, now in some cases... Of course, probably more for political uh, capital reasons than for pragmatic reasons. Being banned in certain states Uh, altogether—talk about a political appetite and how that can shift and shift quickly. Um, The question then kind of falls back on: if you try to take a a more or less nonpartisan view, how does idealism and um, political beliefs and standards and and ideas that one holds so strongly to meet? and clash with pragmatism and, um, what the, what the will of, of the quote unquote people seems to be. So when, when that political appetite runs out or appears to run out there, I mean, I have to believe there's still quite a bit of political appetite out there in the atmosphere, um, especially under perhaps the underrepresented voices in a country like ours that mm. are still clamoring for just as much, uh, as they right. were three years ago, as they were 30, as they were over 140, uh, years ago. Um, but that's uh, what I'm understanding as part of the complication when you have a figure like, uh, like James Garfield, who was an abolitionist, who, um, you know, really strongly came out against slavery. And I believe also, uh, you mentioned in your book, Charlie, that, uh, did Garfield himself shelter escaped enslaved persons against orders during the civil war when he was fighting for the union?
1: He, he, he hid or he helped runaway slaves multiple times and he did it both before the war when he was president of this, uh, college in Ohio where he, you know, in this part of Ohio he was from and in the war, he, 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 he later claimed that he was the first union army officer, the first general at least to refuse orders to turn away run to turn over runaway slaves that in his camp in the South to their owners. And that was what actually caused him, and this is a look back at a younger, much more firebrand, progressive Garfield. Um, he was campaigning in the Deep South, and he was deeply frustrated in the way Union Army policy was preventing him from being a more active abolitionist while campaigning. Uh, the Union Army was, in many cases, not allowed to uh, you know, intervene in Southern property, and property of that time, that included humans, tragically and so uh garfield ended up deciding that the army was for the birds after a while he had gotten what he needed from that service he'd been part of the glory that he wanted to win and so he transitioned back into politics but yeah so he, he his um his his life story and his political career it's a very good look at both the benefits and the um terrible drawbacks of somebody who defines Their political position based on what's possible. He ended his political career, you know, by assassination. So it wasn't something that he had direct control over, tragically. But uh, he ended it as somebody who believed that politics in America was the art of the possible. And when when that's the way you think, that often uh, renders uh, legislative accomplishments impossible, if that makes any sense. If you don't think a battle can be won, then you won't fight it. Therefore, it will never be won. It was the self-fulfilling logic uh, in, in ways. But uh, he was a wonderful mix of somebody who had a terrific vision. You're right that he was very prophetic. It's almost as if when I was reviewing his record, it was almost like he was skipping a few chapters ahead in American history. He always seemed to know what the next major event was going to be and how to position himself within it. Before the Civil War, he was writing that uh, the Civil War would eventually would be a long conflict. Uh, very few people in the North were saying it was going to be a long conflict at the beginning. He also said it was going to eventually assume the shape of slavery versus freedom. as he wrote, this is how, that is how the world will remember it as slavery against freedom at the time again, very few Northerners were openly saying that Lincoln had positioned his government, his administration, on the idea of the Civil War not being about any abolitionist agenda rather about national sovereignty, keeping the union together. That's how Lincoln presided over his coalition. Garfield saw in the civil war, he saw one, you know, uh, it's going to be bloody and long and two, it's going to be ultimately an abolitionist war. And that inspired him to join in halfway through the war. He's in the South. He's frustrated by the progress. He's, he's frustrated by not being able to be this abolitionist crusader in the South. And so he writes based on what he's seeing in the South, he's sheltering runaway slaves. And he says that the conflict to follow the war will be of much more importance than the war itself. And the conflict to follow, he means reconstruction, winning the peace. So he had a you know, great look ahead. And that, that was true, by the way, right up until his assassination, his inaugural address. He, uh, he, he endorses the need for universal public education in America. That's a first. He says that civil rights violations in the South needed to be treated with a severity as in the old world in Europe people would treat somebody trying to kill the king. like So So that that's how serious he was warning that of a civil rights violation. And he also predicted the use that America would have for a hypothetical future canal built to connect Pacific and Atlantic oceans across Central America. So he's predicting the Panama Canal, uh, which is, a, yeah, so, so he was a very prophetic person. And I think he might've been the greatest intellect to ever be in the White House. But the way Uh, people remember him, is colored uh, irreparably by the way he died. Because Garfield's death was so spectacular, it was so dramatic, and it was so tragic for the nation that it had the effect, as I put it to another audience, of setting off a firework at the end of a Broadway musical. No one's going to remember the musical they're going to remember the fire that went off at the very end. And that was kind of the role of his assassination at the very end of what was a momentous and I'd argue one of the most impressive American lives of our history.
0: Yeah. His, his rise to power from growing up, um, to a single mother, his father died, I believe when he was two years old and yep. in the American frontier. So in the wilderness of Ohio, the last, as you mentioned of the log cabin presidents. So he would be the last that was Raised in in that style of home before a more modern housing and everything that came along with it, to becoming, um, I mean, you mentioned the litany of of jobs and roles that he had in his young life: uh, college president, preacher, eventually becoming uh, what what was his highest rank in the in the Union Army? He became became a major general, a major and, general,
1: and he was actually the youngest major general uh, ever of the Civil War. Uh, he was the youngest brigadier general at the time of his promotion, but, uh, he was major general only for a very short period of time. So I try to like, it was, was given to him essentially as he was exiting the army. Yeah. So I tried to, uh, I, I tried I don't, I don't want to give him too much credit because otherwise the whole thing seems ridiculous because yeah, of the, enough, in, yeah. the amount of things he accomplished. It was crazy.
0: Right. You mentioned he was the youngest congressman, uh, in, in history at that time at 31, he was one of the most progressive, uh, in yeah, the Congress. he would
1: always he would always describe himself as the youngest congressman. But importantly, and this is also what other Garfield biographers have done, they also describe him as the youngest congressman. He was excluding an at-large member. There's an at-large member who was younger than him, but Garfield conveniently ignored that when he was listing his own accomplishments.
0: Well, he knew how to market himself. In addition to all these great accomplishments, uh, he did, he and ser- you can't certain- fault him for that. No. Yeah. Uh, hey, every politician's a marketer deep down uh, and at the end of the day. But um, so for this this incredible ascent, you've described uh, Garfield's life as being like one of the true like American stories, you know, growing up in a log cabin, becoming president of the United States. And of course, as you're talking about here, Charlie, his assassination was was tragic and uh, how he would ultimately become remembered, which is his own kind of tragedy, I think. Uh, I've heard in other interviews you've mentioned how you tried to strategically not use the name of the assassin uh, yes. in in homage or uh, in honor of a practice that is done by some but not all in the media of not giving more credit to, in effect, murderers um, mm-hmm. who are looking in some way, shape, or form for notoriety for infamy um, through deeds such as mass shootings or, or individual murders. Can you tell us about how President Garfield was killed? Tell us a little bit about the story and what kind of happened, not only um, you know, to, to James Garfield, but to the United States in the wake of this shooting and how, how America was reckoning with it.
1: Sure. So to give the full context for the way he died, you need to go back to the way he was initially nominated for the presidency. James Garfield was by all appearances accidentally nominated for the presidency, or at least he was elected against his will. Uh, He, you, 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 you're heading into the election season of 1880 and the Republican party is so badly factionalized, it is so awfully divided that a few uh, wise observers are noticing that none of these factional, Uh, candidates. None of the people who are running for the Republican nomination have a hope of winning the convention for the Republican party to pick its nominee. And then in the fall, so they start approaching Garfield behind closed doors ahead of the convention as a possible spoiler candidate, somebody who could come in and unify the party as no one else could of that time, and then lead it to victory in the fall. He was very hesitant for a variety of reasons to throw his hat into the ring. And he made that very clear. But here's the thing. Here's the secret about people in Washington. No one is not interested in the presidency. <laughs> yeah, even, right. even if Even if they have a lot of reservations, even if they're afraid of running, even if they think the role is overvalued and actually a great source of misery for people who own it, if you ask somebody who has all of those doubts, if they're interested in the presidency, there is going to be 2% of them that is curious about the idea. And that's exactly what happened with Garfield, I should say. He shows up to the convention and he's not an active candidate. He's not running. But he does this thing throughout the convention, uh, this week-long process where he happens to say the right thing at the right time at the right place throughout this long gladiatorial combat that eventually convinces people that he would be the perfect person to rescue the Republican Party from its divisions. So Garfield is, after a series of contested ballots, he gets a surprise chunk of votes. He goes from zero to 20 about, and he stands up and he says to the chair as a point of order, he says, um, uh, no candidate can be voted on without their consent. Well, that was the perfect thing to convince everybody to vote for him the next time around. He was this reluctant prince. He was exactly who deserved the role. So Garfield gets the Republican nomination and immediately his problem is how to keep the party together. And his big, the big thorn in his side in doing so is the stalwart wing of the party. And the stalwarts are, uh, another name for them of the time was the corruptionists. They believed in abusing federal power and controlling parts of the federal government as their own fiefs. They believed in using public jobs as rewards for cronies and ways to enrich themselves privately with their public duties. So Garfield promises the stalwarts a variety of the spoils, that was the term used to describe these federal jobs. And by the way, he also, as an olive branch, he makes his vice president, Chester Arthur, who is a stalwart boss who had never been elected to anything before in his life, but who liked the idea of being vice president enough to accept this role. Anyway, Garfield wins the election and immediately there are problems because the stalwarts start calling for the, their, their jobs and Garfield is not giving them the jobs they want. And they immediately threaten the end of the administration. So, or at least practically the end of the administration. They say, uh, this is a quote from the stalwart boss, Roscoe Conklin to, uh, president-elect Garfield. Uh, you know, your administration cannot be any more successful than I allow it to be very brave words for the Senate boss to say to a president-elect anyway. So Garfield is in office. There is a fight, a predictable fight between him and the stalwarts. Unpredictably, it ends with a stalwart sympathizer who had been trying to get a job in the administration, stalking and then shooting Garfield in the back in downtown D.C., not far from where I'm talking to you today. Garfield doesn't uh, die of the gunshot. He dies of the infection. Uh, His doctors, by the way, uh, are not quite converts to the idea of germ theory. That's an entirely new idea coming out of Europe. Uh, But interestingly, the country reacts by blaming the Stoward faction of the party, not necessarily for what the Stowards themselves did, but for what their rhetoric and their toxic brand of politics had done to inspire a mentally ill person, the shooter was mentally ill, to shoot the president. And so there is a very interesting political, not reckoning, but reconciliation in the country. The tone of partisan fighting was brought down both within the Republican Party and outside of it, because the shock, one, that a president could be shot because Lincoln's assassination had been d- dismissed as a wartime anomaly, but two, that any, that of all presidents, James Garfield would be the one to be shot. He was described as being personally, universally popular. So the idea that an assassin could target him of all people, this was seen as appalling. So it was this cue for the whole nation to bring down its partisan rhetoric. And also very importantly, It was the cue for the country to begin reforming its federal bureaucracy, to begin controlling the way government jobs are awarded and the way conduct within them is regulated, uh, which was this topic referred to as civil service reform. And I know civil service reform sounds like the most boring topic imaginable. It was actually, I'd argue it's incredibly dramatic. It's the reason that your tax collector, your sheriff, your, uh, Post office worker are not political appointees, but professional bureaucrats. And we owe a lot of that to the way James Garfield died. But it's a very interesting parable for the costs of hyper-partisanship in our country and really the history of it in many ways.
0: Yeah, interesting. So the the, the fever pitch of hyperpartisanship partisanship was seen by the public as well as other elected officials, uh, those in positions of power as contributing to The violent behavior, yes, and 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 um, it's really interesting because you know we we live in a time where there's both this understanding of a direct tie between not just violent rhetoric, uh, although that's certainly enough, but certain forms of rhetoric being popularized and normalized and and in some cases destigmatized, you know, and, and people losing a sense of social shame around using certain language. I'm thinking of our most recent president uh in in really proliferating and breaking a lot of those um uh the the what's the word i'm looking for just just kind of like breaking norms that are considered to be socially acceptable and how that has a trickle down effect of normalizing through behaviors and also language uh and stories but also like people's sense of physical and psychological safety throughout time so there's another parallel there that i'm picking up on between the era of of james garfield and today um carrying right along though charlie uh, i do want to dig in a little bit more to to garfield's abolitionist history because uh so first of all i know that he had a relationship to the famous formerly enslaved abolitionist orator and social reformer frederick Douglass. i want to ask you a little bit about their connection um and garfield's was you know as you mentioned highly idealistic uh when in his younger days he referred to chattel slavery as the monstrous injustice of human slavery, uh, but also maybe wasn't as vociferous a defendant of Reconstruction um, as time went on and he became more of a pragmatist. Uh, he also, Garfield, didn't believe, as I learned in your book, that freed black, freed black Americans could use their freedom wisely. Um, there's and then on top of it all, there was also this role that Garfield had in in stealing land from Native American Indians uh, and indigenous tribes. A lot of paradoxes. What comes to mind for you first when you uh, reflect on the complicated nature of this this white man and power holder in his relationship to marginalized groups, um, for better and for worse.
1: I think he was a perfectly complex encapsulation of a very complex time. Garfield was of, his, you know, in his in his moment, he was actually one of the leading progressives, really, on all of these issues. But that had its limits, and that had its horizons. And uh, he would not be who we would consider today. You know, today he would be as you know, you can probably imagine, a very easily canceled individual. Um, His views of the time, he believed that, and this was a revolutionary view. Uh, from a young age, he believed that all races in humanity's, you know, uh, family or, or the way we think of ourselves as races. He believed every single type of human was capable intellectually, morally, physically of the exact same thing. Um, but he, but that seemingly, uh, you know, uh, progressive and utopian worldview, uh, had its, Flaws; it had its cracks. Uh, it was good from Garfield's perspective when it came to uh, formerly enslaved Americans, Black Americans. He was again a very ardent, not just abolitionist, but equal rights advocate. He founded the first federal Department of Education because he wanted former slaves in the South to have the same advantages that uh, you know wealthier, predominantly white Americans were offered. Very praiseworthy. But when it came to Native Americans, for example, that attitude was at least in his worldview, It, it, it had malevolent, almost genocidal undertones because he believed that in order to get Native Americans to access their full potential, they needed to be forcibly integrated into what white Americans thought of as society. And so he believed ultimately, and this is what actually led him to appropriating that land as a congressman that you reference. He believed that in order, that in order for Native Americans to uh, access all the benefits being offered them by this encroaching republic to their east, they needed to have their culture removed from them. And that was Garfield's view. And, and so uh, it, it, it just illustrates both the the terrific progress that has and the progressive spirit that has really always been present in this country, but also the limitations of it and the flaws of these people who are, in their time, champions of progress, but who are also terribly weak on many issues. And Garfield's a great demonstration of that.
0: Yeah. Could you tell us briefly about the relationship between Garfield and Frederick Douglass, who- Oh
1: yeah, sorry, good th- point. Yeah,
0: no, I, I loaded out four questions on you, but it's really interesting because Frederick Douglass, while while a great uh, anti-racist in so many ways, also the subject of some criticism for today for his views, um, not as an abolitionist, but for uh, the assimilationist views um, that that he would um, proliferate at that, that time and, and how he was uh, philosophically attempting to solve issues around uh, post slavery yeah. in the United States so what was that connection like for them
1: they knew each other it wasn't a uni- it wasn't I'd argue a positive relationship Frederick Douglass, like a lot of you know people of Douglas's political bent saw Garfield as this uh, untrustworthy moderate uh, Douglass had this line that he used about Garfield he, he said that Garfield lacked moral backbone that Garfield had no spine.
0: It's almost and, he seems to have been proven right on that with, with how was. Garfield walked back his, his idealism and just sought a yeah. pragmatic route. Well, yeah, he was. But
1: what was interesting was, was what, what Republicans like Douglas, like Ulysses Grant, uh, and uh, also people on the other side of the spectrum, Democrats, thought of Garfield. They all described him as having no moral backbone. They described his wavering his friendliness. He was a universally, again, personally a very popular person around D.C. Um, they would describe that characteristic and those characteristics as being symptomatic of weakness. That's where that spinal insult came from. Garfield would turn it around, though, and he would say uh, that it, it's, a, as he put it, to be an extreme man is doubtless comfortable. Uh, it is incredibly painful to see so many sides to every subject. And that was Garfield's view. He he, he saw pragmatism and open-mindedness and moderacy is actually the really difficult course, the truly arduous path for a politician to follow. And he saw the necessity of following it himself. Uh, so, well, I, and this is actually demonstrates my point. Garfield gave Douglas a job in his administration as recorder of deeds for the city of Washington. It was technically a downgrade from the job, uh, uh, from the job that uh, Frederick Douglas had held in the Hayes administration. But Douglas later wrote that it was actually better for his life because it gave him not just a good source of money, but also time to continue writing and serving his political, you know, cause. It gave him more time to actually be this activist public leader of the movement rather than be stuck in a Washington office all day. So so it had its way of working out. It. And it shows again how Garfield was even with people he didn't get along with, he wanted to give them something. And that's very compelling, I think.
0: So, we're rounding down towards the bottom of our our interview here, Charlie, and I want to ask you a couple more questions the The first is is for you as a writer, as a biographer, and a historian. What I keep hearing in our conversation is like how much nuance there is, which it sounds like also James Garfield was himself advocating for like the importance of staying in a nuanced position and seeing both sides of things and something that is still today with in politics weaponized against. Politicians, yeah, yeah, yeah. right, for having no moral backbone, flip flopper John Kerry yes. is what jumps to mind first, right? In two thousand, John Kerry,
1: uh, Mitt Romney, who, yep, yeah, for sure, who, who referred to himself as the flipping Mormon,
0: which right? Is a, and is a, which and, is a
1: great, great yeah. line.
0: And even President Biden himself has been subject of a lot of criticism, some of which is founded, but for trying to hold coalitions and bring people together, um, as as he was known for, uh, in some cases, uh, as during his time in the Congress. But there is this element of being in the nuance being in the gray which i feel like is just a healthy way to live and exist myself um but is also exceptionally challenging and so we're talking about this book this figure a prominent historical figure who is very complicated which mm. i also kind of feel call myself in here as a white guy i feel like it, white guys refer to things as complicated, when maybe you're we should right. use we should you're use a, more direct you're, language, you're, like you're, you're 100% morally right. reprehensible and absolutely abhorrent and racist and and misogynistic and so forth. Right. So let's right, let's right. call a spade a spade. But we do use that language, like it's complicated um, yes. to shade to shade things in a certain way. But here we're talking about James Garfield. So you, as a writer, how do you navigate neither mythologizing a figure like this as being something grander than a human being Mm -hmm. and and not also just demonize and if i may with my language beat the shit out of a long dead figure who like we said not only quote unquote flawed or complicated but in some cases reprehensible by our standards socially culturally morally and ethically today how do you navigate that of like trying to tell the story like it is as a journalist but also Assigning some meaning to this story because of its relevance in many cases to the world in which we live today.
1: Yeah, that's a very good question. So I'd start with the fact that every biographer, every single biographer, they're always drawn to not a subject necessarily, but actually they're drawn to a genre. And if you look at the great biographers of you know of our time, um, you can you can find across their books their genre of interest. And, and for example, I'll point out Walter Isaacson. He's written about Henry Kissinger, Leonardo da Vinci, Steve Jobs, Jennifer Doudna. He's interested, not in a time period, he's interested in innovators. He wants people who are you know, changing a status quo in some visionary way in ways that are both good and bad, and he delves into that. Now, my genre that I'm interested in, I'm interest, I'm very interested in people from American political history who are trying to keep our system functioning under extreme duress, who are trying to occupy that functionary, that 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 that, that uh, almost technocratic middle of our government, who are just trying to keep the gears of our great machine churning on. And I'm very interested in what these people think functioning means. Because to have the American government functioning, that means different things to different people. What do you prioritize as being an indicator of things working? Is it justice or is it you know the train's running on time uh and gar and so with with uh, was what was ha- garfield one he was a fantastic writer and he was a prolific writer and even better yet he was a hoarder he, he hung on to everything he wrote and so by virtue of everything he accomplished and everything he witnessed and how long he was in power he had some great material for me to work from and he was a wonderfully complex encapsulation of all of those issues you raised um, now, how do you present that as a writer to the reader? Well, it helps that I try to avoid analysis. I, I instead I try to put my reader in the moment, next to the subject, and I try to present the subject and their thinking in their writing as is. And I try, and I, so I, if anything, you know, I, I can editorialize a bit now that I'm outside the bounds of the printed page. But I try to just put things before the reader and let them draw their own conclusions and let them pick up the breadcrumbs that I lay down. And then they end up by the end of the book, they end up where I am in many cases, and in a lot of cases, not. I've heard a wide diversity of feedback. Some people have said, wow, what a fantastic, patient, progressive, you know, inspiring person. We need somebody like that today. I've also had mentors and people of mine who endorse the book, by the way, who wrote blurbs, who say, what a scumbag. <laughs> and I, and that shows me that I did right. There is a sculptor from the early, uh, late, late 19th, early 20th century America called Augustus St. God Ends. And his work is actually, he's got a lot of pieces in New York, but somebody once wrote of him that St. God Ends was a perfect artist because like all perfect artists, he holds up the mirror and nothing more. He's just, he just presents as it is. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't editorialize and so my answer to all these complicated questions is just to put it on the page and then let, let P it's almost like a Rorschach test. Then you let people just draw whatever conclusions they want and you get a, you get a spectrum, but people generally end up in one big corner of it. Like a lot of spectrums.
0: Yeah. It's so fascinating. It reminds me of what a good, good therapist does in many cases too, to be, to be the mirror and, and sometimes step back out of the way. So final question for you, Charlie, um, like to ask our guests here, you know, on a show called The New Story is what new story you uh, hope that your work uh, puts forth in the world. You might have just started to answer it there with, with your last statement about how to uh, how to reflect um, stories like these figures from history. But I wonder what new story would you like uh, about President Garfield or that, you know, the America or the world in which we live? Would you like readers and our listeners to take away from this biography and the conversation? That we're having, what jumps to mind for you?
1: What I'd like them to do is to go into our history and find somebody that you'd never heard of before. I, I think we live at a, a a big reason this book ended up being, you know, uh, accepted by Simon and Schuster, and a big reason that they took a risk on me is because we live in a time where now more than ever we could benefit from diversifying our political pantheon the way we remember our past leaders in american history uh no one's written about garfield from birth to death authoritatively in quite a while you had you've had books about his assassination very good books none about his life and i what i found was revelatory to our own time unexpectedly in many ways and i think there are many more gems out there and i encourage your readers to be part of that new story
0: C.W. Goodyear, biographer, historian, and the author of the presidential biography called President Garfield from Radical to Unifier. It's available everywhere now at booksellers. You can find the book and Charlie at Cwgoodyearbooks.com Charlie, thank you so much. This was a fascinating conversation. Congratulations on the book. Thank you for writing it, for educating me about a figure I, I knew admittedly very, very, very little about. Uh, and I wish you all the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. It was a blast.
1: And I really appreciate you having me on.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of The New Story Is. My name is Dave Ursillo. Please rate and review our show, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, to help other listeners find our show and know that it's truly worth listening to. We work real hard to bring you these interviews. We hope you've been enjoying the new content we've been delivering up to you weekly. Stick around. Stay tuned for more interviews coming down the pike. Until next time, dear listener, story on.